Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Wanda Skavonska on the topic, Psychology and Christianity. This April 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belleville. Dr. Wanda Skavonska is a school counsellor and registered psychologist. Thank you for the warm welcome and I feel like I'm with really among friends you know, who um, might have heard some of this before so forgive me if you've um, you know, heard it before but like you I'm kind of getting really worked up these days I suppose it's happened over the last few years at all the things that you're never told by the mass media or by the courses, uh, by the people in the universities where you are. You know the great untold stories of the modern day are probably the, the mass conversions to Catholicism that are occurring in Africa or to Christianity in general or perhaps the, uh, the fact that the uh, Greenie movement owes a lot to Catholicism because of the Benedictine and other monasteries use and conservation policies 1,400 years ago they weren't invented and the other big untold story of the modern era especially for psychology students is the fact that Catholicism and psychology, far from being enemies, which was happened after Freud and Jung and Carl Rogers came on the scene, far from being enemies, historically were great allies. In fact, if it weren't for Catholicism, psychology might never have developed as a discipline. Now that sounds pretty counter kind of intuitive to say that because as practicing Catholics, a lot of you would have thought, oh, psychology, Oh, it's a load of rubbish, um, a lot of secular humanists are in it, um, they give a very atheist worldview and so on. But uh, tonight I wanted to talk a little bit about the connection and particularly about the beginnings of um, psychology rather than more the 20th century version, but just to tell you what you're never told. I'm pretty confident that very few people would have heard of this and when I came across it, it blew my mind after do doing psychology at university for six or seven years, I had never been told this by anybody. Well guarded secret. Well of course CK Logos, psychology, as a lot of you know, CK means the soul, Logos, the study of or the order of. So psychology itself, the word, is the study of the soul. The greatest intellectual lights of the first 1500 years, that is Augustine and Aquinas, they drew on the traditions of Plato and Aristotle and uh, they were very much preoccupied with the inner life of the human being, the soul. We had Bonaventure, St Bernard of Clairvaux, St Simeon the New Theologian, Ansel, we had uh, a lot of people focusing. We had St Teresa of Avila, St John of the Cross, they described spiritual development and the inner life with great um, profundity. They knew the psychology and the weakness of the human person and uh, also how that person could triumph over themselves. Well, go forward to 1900 now and the Industrial Revolution after this history of um, you know, this great spiritual writing. And you've got, as you know, the great development of the natural sciences. Um, you've got great interest in intense quantification and controlled observation um, which was eventually applied to society and human consciousness 
economics, behaviour and so on. And out of that arose a lot of the subjects um, in our 20th century. The empirical drive to study the human mind and in psychology affected people of all persuasions in the 19th century. You had Johannes Müller, who was a physiologist and psychologist in Germany. He was a devout Catholic who studied and was proud to call himself a psychologist. You had Helmholtz, who was an utter materialist, and you had Fechner, who was a pantheist. All of these made great um, discoveries about the mind or about some particular aspect of the mind. Now, there's a book that you probably never come across some in, in ordinary libraries, but um, it's sort of like a bit of a collector's item. It's called Catholics in Psychology. It was written in 1952, of all things, 1950s. And uh, I found it... Um, somewhere on the internet and, you know, sort of paid a bit of a fortune to get it. But it's actually a gem because it's uh, written by two Catholics, Misiak and Stout, unheard of people, two psychology students, but it details the development of Catholics in psychology in the 19th century and into the 20th century and it tells you what happened afterwards. So a very rare and interesting book to be written from that perspective. Now... Going back to this Johannes Müller, he's this German fellow. He's um, born 1801. Um, he's a devout Catholic, distinguished physiologist, studies the human body, does all these, you know, things. And he says, you know, there's a lot to the human mind that's physiologically based. Now, that sounds a little bit like, oh, wasn't he a materialist if he's saying things like that? I mean, he was such an enthusiastic uh, physiologist that he'd say things like Nemo psychologus nisi physiologus you can't be a psychologist unless you're a physiologist but having said that and while he anticipated the development of neuropsychology the thing is he never looked on psychology as a contradiction to his faith he never for one moment looked at psychology as anything but the development of the, or an example of the wisdom and the greatness of God, which he referred to in his writing. So he had a metaphysic, he had a philosophy, he had a theology. Um, and that's what um, makes his writings different from the materialists of the 20th century. But he was early on in the 19th century. If you had to say there was one founding moment, you know, blow the trumpets, this was the beginning of all psychology in the modern world. There's one person with whom everybody um, is, is familiar or at some point in psychology uh, and that is a man called Wilhelm Maximilian Wundt. It's W-U-N-D-T, Wundt. Now this fellow, Maxim, Wilhelm Wundt, was a German physiologist as well. You can imagine he was very much the German professor, you know, and he... Uh, basically decided that there was a lot to be learned from introspection and he got a lot he set up a laboratory and he is actually accredited with establishing the very first psychological laboratory in history in modern history in any case and so you can imagine this fellow dressed up in the white lab lab coat the glasses the um, you know the fiery look in his eyes um, and he actually conducted a lot of experiments 
in this laboratory which he set up. Now, he graduated in medicine from the University of Heidelberg in 1856 and he joined the university staff and became an assistant to the physicist and physiologist Hermann von Helmholtz in 1858. He wrote a book that's called Contribution to the Theory of Sense Perception. And at that time, he offered the very first course in what he called scientific psychology, stressing the use of experimental methods drawn from the natural sciences. So this William Wundt, if you go to any histories of psychology, he's the founding kind of father of the 19th century. He was promoted to assistant professor of physiology in 1864, and then he started to write a book called The Principles of Physiological Psychology. That's in 1874. And uh, he looked at the immediate experience of consciousness. You know, what do you feel when you're looking at this? What is it that you really see? All these questions about perception. And this led, in the end, to him being appointed to Leipzig University, where he's a very popular lecturer. And um, he opened the very first laboratory officially with a university sanction in 1879. Now this is the big date, 1879. You might know that that's another important date in church history. I'll just leave that for a while. The date of a very interesting encyclical, but you know, just leave that for the time being. Um, in this laboratory, which he called it, this first professor would get sit people down and he'd do experiments like he'd have a metronome ticking away and he'd say, what did you feel between the tick and the top? You know, this sort of thing, we, you know, great interest. Uh, but um, he had crowds of people coming to him and, um, you know, overwhelming enthusiasm from all quarters that people would come and just observe him because they thought it was such an exciting way to describe um, what they call mental life. And uh, I think what attracted people was the experimental nature of it, that he'd try to quantify it. And, um, and uh, one historian of psychology, George Miller, who was actually you know, not particularly um, you know, Christian in his worldview, but he, he just acknowledged, he said, to wound scientific meant experimental. If psychology was to become a science, it would have to use its introspective approach in an experimental situation in a laboratory. Only in a special environment of a laboratory could the elusive elements of conscious experience be analysed. Now you can see this attempt to kind of grasp what's in the mind and quantify it and you know get hold of it and you know um, and actually when Freud came along and emphasised the unconscious, he he despised Wundt. You know he he kind of said oh you know all this consciousness and in a sense Freud was right because there is a there is an unconscious sort of um, dimension, you know, which comes out in dreams and in, you know, the slips of the tongue. But, I mean, I think his condemnation of Wundt was quite unfair because um, uh, Wundt came from a very different angle. You see, he didn't think that psychology was simply a matter of experimentation. He was dead keen on it. He put on his lab coat. People would kind of be hanging from the rafters watching him doing these experiments with the metronome and hanging things in front of people. Um, but he always said that the spiritual is important in human existence. He always said the spiritual dimension is important to understanding the human being because that is the way we're made. 
And you're going to study consciousness. You've also got to study the fact that people have um, a culture, that they have ties to a particular family, a group, a community. And in that community and culture, there's a worldview. So Wundt, who wasn't really a, a kind of a strong Christian, though I think he did have a, a you know, Christian background, he really emphasised cultural factors. And this was overlooked by later psychologists when they tried to discover, to discover his work and then to describe it in some way. They kept saying, oh yes, he was a great psychologist because he experimented. And they didn't look at the other side of his work, which was the cultural and the spiritual worldview. Now, all of this is relevant to some of the visitors who came to his laboratory. Because among the people who flocked to his laboratory were people like an American priest called Father Edward Aloysius Pace. Now, this um, extraordinary priest, philosopher and psychologist is barely known to not only to psychologists but what is really sad to Catholic psychologists who are doing courses in secular universities. Father Edward Pace was such an enthusiast for Wundt's experiments. He travelled to Leipzig having been in Rome, um, having done a doctorate there and having debated to mystic philosophy with fellow philosophers in front of Pope Leo XIII um, to the compliments of Pope Leo XIII. He then heard about Willem Wundt's laboratory and he, the way it happened was he was leafing through a second-hand book one day in Paris and in about 1889 and he, uh, he just couldn't put it down. It was Willem Wundt's book on the principles of um, psychology. So he rushed to Leipzig and to cut a long story short, he ended up staying and doing a doctorate in psychology with Wilhelm Wundt. But this is the interesting thing. When he walked into Wundt's laboratory, what did Wundt say to him? He said with respect, Ah, you are a Catholic priest. And he said with respect to him, Ah, so we can discuss neo-Thomistic philosophy. I am very interested in your Pope's latest encyclical entitled Eterni Patris. Let's sit and discuss it. And they did, to the mutual benefit of both, for about two hours. Can you imagine a psychologist saying this today? I mean, I just put this as a rhetorical question. And Pace um, had no trouble adapting himself to that kind of environment. And... Uh, I forget what the exact topic of his thesis was. It was something very um, precise about consciousness. Of course, at that time, there was another very important figure who was um, also an American, as it turns out, um, William James. And you might have heard of him because of his brother Henry James, the novelist. But William James um, was often termed the father of American psychology. And he was... Um, prominent in the 19th century, around the same time as Willem Wundt was. He also went to Leipzig. Anybody who was anybody had been to Leipzig to Wundt's laboratory. That was the kind of, you know, even amongst the Catholics. And uh, in 1890, William James wrote a book called the, Princi uh, the Principles of Psychology and later a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. Now, William James wasn't a Catholic. He was, he did come from a Protestant background, and he was really 
quite respectful of religious experience, though he tended to describe it a little bit as something quite bizarre. He was interested in the sensational and the unusual, so he had that perspective on it. He didn't describe it as a normal part of a sane, normal person's life that they would believe in God and their hereafter. But the important point was, given his attitude, he still had respect for the faith. He still had respect for believing people. So that was the atmosphere of the time. Um, he didn't share all of Wundt's enthusiasms. Um, and he even tried to claim later that he set up the first laboratory in psychology and history because... But it turned out that he had a storeroom with psychological equipment in it in 1875, but that didn't really count as a laboratory. So there's a bit of kind of competition over who was the first to set up a laboratory. Now, you've got these people who are respectful of religion. Now, I don't want to sort of uh, paint too rosy a picture because you have to remember that the 19th century was the century where atheism grew and a lot of Catholic people were persuaded to drop their beliefs. I mean, there were people like Franz Brentano, Karl Stumpf and August Messer, all had been very prominent and very devout Catholics and they turned away from their faith but they got interested in the new psychology as well. And this public rejection of prominent people like this roused suspicion of new experimental methods to, with the thought that engaging in psychology according to some was only to be done at the cost of one's soul. However, when you look at the rejection of Catholicism of these three prominent thinkers that I mentioned, that is Brentano, Stumpf and Messer, it wasn't the mocking rejection that you get with atheists nowadays who will just mock the notion that the spiritual exists or that if you mention any notion of a deity. It was more they had arguments about specific points. For example, with Franz Brentano, he really, his uh, cracking point was he couldn't accept um, papal infallibility and uh, what Vatican I defined as um, papal infallibility. However, he did believe there was a God and he didn't reject the spiritual side of life. So atheism in the 19th century among some of these people was not as virulent and mainstream and public square as it is in the 20th century. So you have to draw a distinction between these. Um, even, I mean, he, Brentano used the word the soul all the time in his lectures. He was a very popular lecturer at the University of Vienna and you'll be very surprised in the later 19th century, who attended Brentano's lectures? Sigmund Freud. Mm. Sigmund Freud actually was exposed to quite a few years of Thomistic philosophy through Franz Brentano. And Paul Witz, an American psychologist, has written a book on, um, he's entitled it, Sigmund Freud's Christian Unconscious. You know, he took the view that uh, if Freud was going to put everybody on the couch and analyse them, he, Paul Witz, American psychologist, could put Freud on the couch and analyse him too. And he went into all the Christian input that Freud had in his um, education, also being minded by a Christian nanny, though he came from a Jewish family and then later rejected his Judaism, but um, and rejected all religion as a, an obsessional neurosis of humanity. That's what he called it. But nevertheless, he used the word soul. 
And actually, Brentano often used the word unconscious. So there's an argument that he really got this notion of the unconscious from Franz Brentano, a Catholic who had been originally brought up in very Thomistic Aristotelian philosophy, Catholic theology, and who lectured Freud, um, among others, who lectured him. And so, you know, you, you've got a, a real mix of influences at that time. As well, you've got the very anti-Catholic atmosphere at the time. Probably, I don't know what Robert um, would think about this, but maybe probably one of the most influential anti-religious works of the 19th century would probably be Feuerbach's The Essence of Christianity. Feuerbach was a German thinker who absolutely loathed everything to do with Christianity. In 1841, he wrote this book and it influenced um, Marx, Hegel, you know, Darwin, Freud. It was such a seminal work. It's sort of like that was the big bombshell of the 19th century. And a lot of people, some people stayed up all night, read it in a night. Engels was so enthralled with Feuerbach's work. He said, I, I was so excited. I realised that religion meant nothing. I stayed up all night and read it. I was so enthusiastic. And, uh, you know, in this way, that this uh, Nietzsche, of course, was very influenced by so you've got that very anti-religious push, but at the same time, you've got this growth of psychology and not too anti-religious in the, let's say, up to about 1890-1900. You've got Catholics coming into it. Um, interesting, if you look at the Catholic Encyclopedia, the one from, is it 1908 or 1913? 1913. And what does it say in its entry on psychology in 1913? You'd expect scathing condemnation, but instead you get a very factual, calm and rather positive description. It says, In the most general sense, psychology is the science which treats of the soul and its operations. During the past century, however, the term has come to be frequently employed to denote the latter branch of knowledge, the science of the phenomena of the mind, of the processes or states of human consciousness. And then it goes on to say, To Albertus Magnus and St Thomas, the popularisation of psych the psychology of Aristotle throughout Europe during the 13th century was mainly due. St Thomas gives a fairly complete and systematic account of the leading topics connected with the soul However, questions of biology, general metaphysics and theology were constantly interwoven with psychology for many centuries afterwards. Indeed, the liberal use made of physiological evidence in psychological discussions is a marked feature in the treatment of this branch of philosophy through the entire history of scholastic philosophy. So, this entry is saying science isn't an enemy, of the church. Science isn't an enemy of faith. And what does that remind us of? You know, fides et ratio. It's what the, the popes are trying to say now, that you know, faith and reason are complementary. And it was being said right at the beginning of this rise of psychology in the 19th century. And the same entry on psychology finishes off saying, inasmuch as Christianity emphasised the inner life, an examination of one's conscience, 
it created a favourable climate for the development of introspective psychology. So there you have it. It's saying, well, basically, Christianity and Catholicism in particular, with its examination of the conscience, laid the groundwork for the growth of psychology. Ask any psychology student you know if they were ever told that in a university course. I'll buy you a cappuccino if they've heard it. <laughs> I'll buy you two, but I'm pretty sure they haven't heard it. I hadn't heard it in six years of my studies. Then you've got, let, let's go back to Wundt and um, look at some of the people who came to his laboratory. I mentioned Father Pace, I'll deal with him in more detail in a second. But earlier than him was a Belgian cardinal called Cardinal Desiré Mercier. He's born in 1851, died in 1926. Born in Belgium, he held doctorates in theology and philosophy. He's one of these geniuses who could really apply himself to anything. He had expertise in chemistry, neurology, mathematics and physics. And he was so enthusiastic about the new psychology um, and he had such a respect for it that he actually set up the first laboratory outside Germany, outside William Wundt's sort of territory, um, because he thought it was very important, in fact imperative, that Catholics study um, these new kind of uh, discoveries about the human mind. He set it up at the Catholic University in Louvain and he had many people coming to, to study. He wrote a book called uh, Psychologie, Les Origines de la Psychologie Contemporaine that was in 1892. That means the origins of contemporary psychology and he insisted that psychology with a sound metaphysics was an extraordinary field to be looked at. And uh, he always saw his work in the context of um, the metaph a metaphysical view of the world. And uh, in Mishak and Stout, you get this following quote about Cardinal Mercier. They describe one of his books. They say, he, Cardinal Mercier, had four plates, that's pictures, in the first volume of his Psychologie, and they were um, pictures of the cell, the human nervous system, sensory receptors, different kinds of body tissue and blood circulation. This was the first time that a textbook of philosophical psychology by a Catholic author contained such illustrations. Um, in general, it was a great improvement over previous Catholic works of this kind, not because it was attentive to data of modern science, because it was so friendly towards experimental psychology and incorporated the findings or theories offered by the new psychologies. Instead of reducing the new views to old terminology and interpretation, the author adapted the old nomenclature to the modern findings and enriched the old concepts by the new interpretations of scientific progress. So it was a, a kind of a fruitful marriage of the experimentation and the rich heritage the rich philosophical and theological heritage of the church. That's Cardinal Mercier, he's one of them. Now the second person I want to discuss is Father Edward Aloysius Pace, who I've mentioned. He wasn't the first Christian to have gone to Wundt's laboratory. Before that, Protestants had flocked by you know the, the dozens to kind of be there. One of them was Stanley G. Hall, and he was the one who established the very um, 
first psych laboratory in America at John Hopkins University. This is a formal lab, not just a storeroom. That was in 1883. So the Protestants sort of were very keen and often these psychology departments were parts of theology departments. So you've got the theology department or school of divinity and you had philosophy and then you had psychology. And that was the, the sort of organisational structure of those schools. Now, um, when uh, Edward, Father Edward Pace, who was actually a Jesuit, um, got to Seewund, he rejected the critics who were, who were attacking psychology. He said, uh, the experimental method is unquestionably scientific and the church is undoubtedly a friend of science. Volumes, in fact, are written to show that she favours the advance of knowledge. But the best argument for the thesis is the long list of names that are equally illustrious for scientific attainments and for devotion to Catholic belief. So Cardinal Mercier and Father Pace really had a clear idea of the boundaries. They thought the experimental aspect as part of their faith, of the theology and the philosophy. Other priests were attacking psychology at the time. They were saying, because they could see that in the atheist spirit of the times, they could see dangers if people forgot the metaphysical foundations. So there was a priest, an American priest, Father Hughes, who attacked this view and he said, a man has to forswear his belief in a truth of Christian faith and must be willing to admit that his soul is not more spiritual than his eye. If he wishes to have anything to do with the new psychology, he must commit a formal dogmatic error. So you have all this attack. On the one hand, he wasn't the only person saying this kind of thing. There were plenty who were attacking it. Um, so, but while plenty attacked it, Father Pace set up the first laboratory at a Catholic university in America. That was at the Catholic University in Washington. And he built up an extraordinary um, group of people. And uh, he really... Even though Freud was gaining in kind of influence in Europe, not in America yet. Freud didn't really become influential in America till about 1909 when he visited with Jung. But Father Pace set up this um, laboratory. He had um, other people studying there, and uh, he really um, he was he encouraged people to become adept in several fields at the same time. It wasn't like you go to university and I'm only going to study psychology and nothing else. That was anathema at the time. You had to become a, either a physicist or a, a medical doctor and then you became a psychologist. So he and, and always you'd study some theology. Some He said you couldn't study psychology without studying philosophy and some theology. He said it was um, just cutting off the root of the actual field of science. But um, the third person I wanted to discuss tonight was a, somebody called Father Thomas Werner Moore and he was a student at the Catholic University um, at Washington and he actually uh, obtained a doctorate under Father Edward Pace and he carried on a tradition where he was not only a, a marvellous um, priest, he ended up being a Paulist priest and became more and more contemplative as his life went on and ended up as a Carthusian, not saying much. He just sent a paper in the end to one of the psychology conferences. But at the beginning, he, um, he was one of these uh, great generalists. He became a doctor, he became a, 
a surgeon. He went as a military chaplain in World War One, but also was a military psychiatrist in the, in the trenches. Um, and he really had a broad view of the cultural and social factors as well as the experimentation at the time. He started an educational psychology department. Um, he studied at Columbia University and he set up a lot of these educational psychology tests. So you've got three figures there, very Catholic, who were very influenced by that early experimentation. And they had many people around them. They weren't the only people. I'll just give you those three as examples. There were other people, both in Europe and America. There were people like Joseph Frobes and Johannes Lindvorsky from Germany. There was a father, Agostino Gemelli from Italy, Eric Wassmann from France, Kazimierz Twardowski from Poland. All of these were immensely Catholic, faithful psychologists. So it's hard to get the words out nowadays, faithful Catholic psychologists. Just such a strange concatenation of terms. But there, was a, there were a lot of them. However, what happened is around 1909, 1910, with the rise of Freudianism and the development of this experimentalism, what happened was people in America, being very uh, kind of pioneering, positive, always having this idea of can do, you know, we can do it, we can change, we can, nothing's impossible and so on. Um, they really took to the experimental side of experimental psychology. And what happened was the metaphysical aspect was forgotten. And you got this growth of what probably what has been the most influential school of, a, of psychology out of all the schools, and that is behaviourism. You might think it's just a quaint little eccentric school in the past. Oh, no. If you want to write a psychology paper at university, you have to do it in the form of a scientific paper. You have to quantify your results. To give you an example, when I was studying at university, I did psycholinguistics as a subject, because there are many different areas. I loved it because I loved studying the development of language. And I had to do a paper on, and don't laugh when you hear the title, but it's the development of the passive, knowledge of the passive in five-year-olds. Okay, that was my subject. Now, you would think I could approach that in a descriptive way, looking at the literature and describe it. Oh, no. I had to do it in the form of a scientific experiment. I had to actually get 35-year-olds and look at their the development of language and see how their understanding of the passive sat in the context of their knowledge of language and write it up as a statistical study. And you will be very hard pressed to find a university that would accept a non-statistical approach. That is maybe a philosophical approach to the subject. It's compulsory. It's compulsory to do it as a... And that's the, that is the triumph of the dominant school of behaviourism. You don't hear people speaking in those terms now. Now you might ask a question, well where does Freud sit with all of that? Wasn't he a big shot? Yes he was. Of course he was a, uh, a monumental influence because he reminded us of the unconscious and he reminded us of um, you know, certain aspects of ourselves, the, the fact that people repress unpleasant aspects of themselves and don't bring them to mind and so on. What he said actually had a very Christian 
context to it except that he had a very open anti-Christian attitude. But um, it's very much a Christian idea that, you know, we tend to hide the negative part of ourselves from ourselves. It's hard to admit. You know, it's like children. It's very hard to get them to admit that they lied, you know, or, you know, and we know that in, you know, the whole idea of confession is that we can do it quietly away from the crowds and say, you know, I did this thing wrong, you know, because it's so hard for human beings to do that. Well, Freud cottoned on to that and he really developed quite a sophisticated and insightful knowledge of the fact that people hide their motivations sometimes from themselves. But, you know, if they face it, they can, you know, um, they become a lot healthier. But the reason Freud didn't take off as much in America, though he had a big following, but it was never as big as a behavior of the behaviorist school. Why? Because as a European, he had a very um, sort of a dark, gloomy attitude um, to life in general. Um, optimist, you could never call him. No. He was a person who thought you really, the best you could do in life is accept the tragic limitations of your fate after 15 years of psychotherapy. And he couldn't guarantee to make you happy, he just could get you to accept your unhappiness a bit more gracefully. And you see, the American psyche just they could respect Freud and they could welcome him to a conference, but really the majority of people couldn't really sit with that because <coughs> it's such a can-do, practical, let's forge forward uh, pioneering spirit, as I said before. And so it was the behaviorists who said, we can do it, we can actually get to understand totally the human mind. They made the most extraordinary claims of the behaviourists. They said, in 15 years we will understand everything there is to understand about the human mind. They were making these claims in the 1940s and 50s. And you've had people like um, oh, um, Watson and Skinner and Tolman and, uh, and people studied under them for years and they had sway until... Carl Rogers came along in the 60s and in his avuncular way said, don't worry about anything, you're fine. And, you know, just soothed a whole generation into thinking there were no moral limits and they didn't need to worry about anything. But um, behaviourism was the successful school. Now, because that school rose to prominence, these early Catholics and their metaphysical view somehow were forgotten. So in the first 50 years of the 20th century, you had this terrible sinking into oblivion of all these these people. They weren't their names weren't even included in psychology courses, not even in Catholic ones. And it took the Protestants at the end of World War Two to wake up out of this psychological stupor to say, Hey, I think we're being sold apart by being given all this sort of secular materialism, experimentalism and just rabid focus on quantification at the expense of philosophy. So what happened? At the end of World War II, conservative Christians came out of the ghettos of psychology in America and there's a place, Taylor University, where somebody wrote an introduction to psychology and evangelical approach. This was a pretty revolutionary title after 50 years of this kind of oblivion of Christian themes. Then a group of conservative evangelical Christians got together in 1954 and 55 and held a conference 
exploring the relation of psychology, psychiatry and religion. And they formed an organisation called the Christian Association for Psychological Studies, CAPS, in 1956. It's still going strong. And they explored how a person's faith and psychology could be integrated. Now, if you go to study at Sydney, New South Wales or Macquarie University, you won't be told this, but this is a fact. Um, there's also a fellow called Clyde Narrimore and he began a radio program called Psychology for Living. And uh, he introduced a lot of Christian themes into psychology. And then in 1973, a group of people got together and started the Journal of Psychology and Theology, which of course was anathema to the experimental psychologists. But they started it and that journal is still going strong. And to give credit to the secular unis, I went to New South Wales Uni not long ago and they've got all the editions right up to the modern day. On the bottom shelf, mind you, but it's there. And I've kind of read with great interest some of the contributions of the different uh, you know, Christian psychologists. Um, you also had the first evangelical school offering a doctoral program in 1964. And so on. So you got this background of this uh, breakout of the evangelical Christians. And then the Catholics start to get into action in America. It came a bit later than this reaction, but you suddenly got a revival of the memory of these early 19th century Catholic pioneers. You've got people like Paul Vitz in the 1970s, professor of psychology at New York State Uni, and later William Coulson and William Kilpatrick, Father Benedict Groeschel, all of them are still alive, and uh, they've written marvellous studies of psychology from the perspective of their religious faith. Paul Vitz didn't condemn psychology, as a Catholic psychologist, he exhorted people to use their faith as a source of help in their practice of psychology. You see, people can say, oh, reject psychology because it, you know, it's got this anti-Christian view. But the fact is, the scientific aspects of the discovery are good. I mean, if you can help people manage diseases like schizophrenia, if you can manage depression through pharmacological methods, Surely one has to be grateful that this is a gift from God that can help people. It's not the be-all and end-all, of course not. But if it can help manage a biological, you know, biochemical imbalance, um, it's a good thing. Um, I deal a lot with children who've got um, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, of course, yes, there's the notion that it can be overdiagnosed, yes, that's true. However, there are many children who genuinely have it and you only begin to understand that when you've had a child who's tried to walk up a wall and walk onto, onto a ceiling, which I've seen, you know, a boy who just couldn't sit still for one minute in a class and was just a demolition machine. And then when he was put on the right medication, totally calmed down, became a lovely boy and then became top of the class within, you know, um, two months of being on the medication. I mean, there are marvellous discoveries in this area of psychology and the church embraces that and is grateful and, and rejoices in that. But the, the point that Vitz is making is that there's a boundary. Um, there's a definition of boundaries that we need to remember. Of course, 
you know, the church was never against experimentalism and knowledge, but it has to be based on a theology because that's what people are like. If you're going to study the human person, after all, the human person is one who looks for a purpose to life. He looks for meaning to life. And given that, you have to look, well, what are the, the, the ways in which a person seeks a purpose? You know, the, what they call a teleology, the purpose you know, of, of life. And so he said, that's Paul Witz, he wrote this very interesting essay called Catholic Presuppositions for a Christian Psychology. And he said that there have been a lot of developments in current Catholic theological thinking as starting a recovery of psychology uh, and the, its merging with theology. And he wrote this, he said, perhaps the most important issue is if one's going to integrate psychology and Christianity, one needs an explicit and broadly conceived theology. Probably the most important is a theological anthropology, that is, what is the human person, what does the human person see? Something that Catholic theologians have been actively working on in the last few decades. This line of inquiry includes an understanding of the person, man and woman, sexuality, freedom, sin, guilt and conscience. That is, one has to know what one is integrating with psychology. So this is where the church has got a plethora of writings on um, you know, the, the, the human person. You know, Pope John Paul II's theological writings, I mean, Evangelium Vitae and so on, and you've got the theology of the body. Um, you've got the church's thoughts on the contemporary social problems of the day, like um, divorce, like you know, the, the effects of it on children or the effects of it on people. Um, you've got the, the church's thought on abortion and how women suffer post-abortion syndrome, things that other people won't dare say. There is a real role for Catholic psychologists and psychiatrists to really spread this message and they are doing it. There is writing out there and it's getting increasingly heard, though it's been a very hard kind of struggle to get it heard. Just before I finish, I'll just quickly describe there were three models of how people see Christianity and psychology. I'm sorry that this talk's been a bit theoretical, but it's very important to get the, the theory and the parameters right for how you see psychology before you start it. That's not what you're told at uni. You just go straight into the, the materialist view. But there are three models. One is that some people say psychology and, and, and uh, you know, religion, Christianity are incompatible. Basically, just go for biblical counselling. If somebody comes to you with problems, you just go to the Bible for its wisdom and you forget psychology. Well, that's a fairly kind of, you'd say, you know, extreme and rather, you know, view. But it's held by certain people in the evangelical world. A second group of researchers say that all levels of reality are important, and to confuse these levels results in misunderstanding. Um, of reality. So they go in for what they call perspectivalism, that theology and psychology use different methods of investigation that can be fruitful with each other. So, um, you know, there's a role for both of them. And uh, there's one, a third model, um, this one says, it, it calls itself an integration model and it seeks to underscore what the domains of psychology and theology hold in common. So it doesn't see them as separate and parallel, 
like the second model, it sees them as integrated and uh, that it combines a special revelation of God's work with the general revelation and discoveries offered by the psychological sciences and professions. And uh, I'd say that Paul Witts and a lot of the Catholic psychologists are in that third category, that they're trying to integrate their um, knowledge of Christianity with that. Now, what is happening in the modern time in America where you've got these Catholic psychologists and by far the greatest group is in America. The place that was totally soaked in psychotherapy and produced all these, you know, therapists where half of America was going to see a therapist, you know, twice a week is also the scene of the counter-reaction to psychology. And I, I really anticipate great things coming from there because the thinkers are there growing and they're getting more voice. Um, and also because the old psychology, psychological approaches hadn't worked. Somebody encapsulated it beautifully in a book title. He said he wrote, we've had a hundred years of psychotherapy and the world isn't getting any better. That's the title of a book. <laughs> and, uh, that, that encapsulates it pretty well. So people are more open now to the spiritual. I mean, they're open to the new age and the spiritual, but they're also open to a spiritual message if people will um, give it to them. And um, part of it is retrieving the memory of where psychology comes from. And then secondly, explaining what the church teaches about the human person. You know, Pope Benedict XVI said in this book, which I recommend to everybody, it's called Values in a Time of Upheaval. Marvellous book, not too long. And it's as if you're sitting in a room, you know, drinking a coffee and having a conversation with him. The, the tone and the way that he writes is just so um, clear and uh, discursive. And he said that as Pope, among many other things, he's the advocate of Christian memory. Because he said we're living in a time where people are losing their memory. And it's interesting that theme of we're living in an ahistorical age, a time when you know people simply don't remember the most fundamental things. And what I see Pope Benedict doing in his writings is he synthesises a lot of the truths of Catholic teaching and he puts them together in a clear form so people remember, oh yes, that's what it's like. In one of his books he said, the world now is like somebody who's got a bit of sleeping sickness. And to keep them alive, you've got to keep talking to them and keep asking them, who are you? How old are you? Where did you come from? And he said, sometimes he sees himself as doing that, to keep the memory of our rich kind of theological heritage going because there's so much challenging it. And it's a great theme of George Weigel in his writing as well. But um, I see these Catholic psychologists in America, this new movement, this counter-reformation, as also being an advocate of Christian memory of the true Christian origins of psychology because they're restoring this spiritual dimension to a profession which to a large extent, like the society around it, has forgotten its own uh, Christian roots. So the insights of theology have fundamental significance to psychology. They always were. And why? Because they're of fundamental importance to every human life. You. you have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Wanda Skowonska. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, 
visit cradio.org.au.